Welcome to Anthony Ploga Music. This is Tony's producer, Eddie Ludema, and I'm introducing this session while Tony's traveling. In the bonus room, Tony asks Marcus to talk about his youth, about the many places he has lived around the world, his beginnings as a singer and songwriter, and how he might just be the only country music songwriter to both major in Islamic studies in college and also be a sports jock. One of the things that's so impressive, in addition to your vast output, is how diverse you are. And I think that probably started from when you were a kid, because you lived sort of everywhere. Um, could you tell us a little bit about what your youth and the different countries you lived in and, and sort of what you got from that and how that influenced you? So my dad, my father, was a, a career State Department guy, and he worked primarily for the Agency for International Development. And then briefly, uh, he was with the Treasury Department. So prior to being 17, I'd mostly lived overseas. Mom and dad were stationed in Tanzania uh, in the 60s. And, uh, and then we lived in Nigeria in the early 1970s. And then uh, <clears throat> the Philippines for almost three years. So basically, I don't know, a couple of months or so after the Marcoses came into power. So that would have been probably 72, 73, somewhere in there. And... Uh, Came back to the U.S. briefly and then went on to Saudi Arabia. Dad switched to the Treasury Department, and he headed up a thing called the Joint Economic Commission to Saudi Arabia. So he was uh, – it was really a political appointment with the Carter administration. And then back to the U.S., um, my junior year, we, we went back. I actually went to school for a year in Italy. Uh, when we were in Saudi Arabia, I wasn't – I really didn't have any uh, options because uh, after ninth grade, expatriates were – not really. In those days, in the, in the late 1970s, not allowed to, there weren't any schools for us. Um, and we were, you know, considered kind of a bad influence, I suspect, for, unless you would go to an Islamic school, you know. So so kids either took correspondence courses from, you know, and stayed at home in Riyadh, which uh, is the capital, believe it or not, the more conservative part of, <laughs> of Saudi Arabia, as opposed to the wildly cosmopolitan Jeddah. And, uh, yeah, so I took courses from the University of Nebraska. I took my sophomore year courses for a semester, but we realized that there was nothing to that. It was kind of just learning by rote. And uh, so I just held off and then I decided to go to boarding school, repeat my sophomore year um, in Rome. And there was a school there, Notre Dame International, which is run by the same folks that run Notre Dame University. And so uh, I was also a jock. And so the other factor was that I didn't really want to go, you know, throughout my high school experience without playing ball. Baseball? You know, for Notre Dame, it was basketball. And then when I got back to the U.S., believe it or not, uh, it was also football. And uh, and really kind of everything. I just, I, mean, I played tennis, too, for Notre Dame. And uh, I sort of was one of those, you know, just year-round guys, you know, whatever, whatever the sport was, she was basically playing it. But Anyway, yeah, I got back to the U.S. and we were in the D.C. area for my part of my junior year and and senior year. And uh, I went to a school there, Ullis Preparatory School, which is just down the street from our house in Potomac, Maryland, and uh, was somewhat interested in music, but sort of sporadically throughout you know my life growing up, I I have a, an intense feel a connection to music. I wasn't obsessed yet. Um, sports, um, school, girls, whatever, took over. And it really wasn't until college, you know, once I got to college, I went to school at Williams College in Massachusetts, in Williamstown. And 
and it was really in college where I, where I was still, you know, playing football. I played four years of ball for them and a little basketball, a little tennis, then ran track and all that kind of stuff. But it was in college that I, I got the bug. For whatever reason, my freshman year, I started to sort of reconnect with the guitar, which I'd been pretty serious about. And, and I decided that I wanted to kind of teach myself piano. And then there was a club there called The Log. And um, it was just a, a beer joint, but it was a place that kids, it was a folk club. And I started to go and play and I would do, you know, covers, James Taylor and Cat Stevens and all the stuff I loved. And then I would throw in my own songs and I began to become kind of obsessed. So by the time I graduated from Williams, I, I really had spent more time in the music rooms teaching myself piano and, and writing songs. I just started I became obsessed and I've never stopped. You know, that was um, almost 40 years ago and it, it, it never ended, which is weird. You know, it's like a disease, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> and there definitely at times in my life, I felt the disease is the operative uh, metaphor. But yeah, so that was my parents went on to live in Botswana for five years and then in Geneva and Switzerland. My dad was at the UN and, and intermittently he was back in the U.S. working on basically issues around development and economics. Um, uh, and that was, you know, his life. They were both musicians. So my mom and dad met at, um, in, at a small school in Michigan, uh, Albion, and um, they met in choir and they both played instruments. Um, and my dad loved to write songs, and but it never was, it wasn't a profession for him, but boy, he, he really loved it. Well, he, you know, it, what's interesting is, um, I made my living for many, many years playing the trumpet. And right. when I met you, I was with Ron Kidd, who was yes. a trumpet player, and that's how we met. And Eddie Ludeman, who you just met, the tech producer, is the trumpet professor at uh, Idaho State University. And wow. your dad was a trumpet player. So we have that in common, well, I guess. that's right. Yeah. Yeah, in fact, you, 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 the audience can't see this, but I keep he really was a piano player, my dad. I mean, that was his, his thing. But he did, when he was a kid, he played trumpet, and it was like, and I, I actually keep it here. Can you see it off there? Oh, yeah. Not yeah, that, uh -huh. not that yeah. I listen to it. It's over, over here, I've got all kinds I of do. Wow. guitars and mm -hmm. electrics and mandolins and all piano. We're sitting at a piano. But over there in the corner, I like to keep my father's trumpet. That's great. So I wish I played the I wish I played the trumpet. Really? I wish I played the guitar. Yeah. So <laughs> we're even well, on that did one. You grow, did you grow up in L.A., by the way? Or yes, where did I you did. Grow up? Yeah, I grew up in L.A. Yeah. Where, 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 where did you live in LA? Well, I was all, sort of all over. Um, started out in Glendale. Um, my parents moved to La Crescenta. Um, as when I was going to college, and then you know, as a young, I guess you'd say professional, boy, I was all over the place. I was in Van Nuys, uh, mm. Pasadena, um, wow. Santa Monica. Yeah, I have a friend who said that he used to keep an address book just for me because I'd ah. moved so many times. So, <laughs> but I loved it there. I mean, it was it was really great. And you spent some time in Los Angeles too before you moved to Nashville. Yeah, well, originally, by the end of college, well, I should backtrack a little bit just since you're asking about growing up. Yeah, can I ask another question? Yeah, quick yeah, question? Please, yeah. Did you, okay, did you learn languages then for those different countries that you were in? Wouldn't that have been great? I, uh, <laughs> okay. You know, I didn't, uh, I, I will say that I was studying, you know, when I was a kid growing up, the language you were supposed to study was French. If your parents were in the diplomatic corps, like that, that was kind of the language. And I remember I did study um, French on and off. And then when I got to Italy, 
I took a French class and uh, I should have studied Italian because I always spoke uh, what, what little I would, I would say, oh, je m'appelle Marcus Silvana. Everything had a lift, you know. <laughs> I, here I was in yeah. Italy and I could have actually learned. But the, the language which, which actually most interested me was Arabic. And so in college, my first year, I was looking at the critical language studies and I was kind of contemplating that I'm very interested in history, uh, Islamic studies, I was particularly interested in. And so I was taking, I took a couple semesters of Arabic and then I sort of had to decide if to go on with this uh, critical language studies that Williams had at the time, which was Chinese, Russian, Arabic, I would have had to go to, I guess, to Beirut, to American University there. They had a program and it wasn't a half year thing. It was a whole year program. And honestly, what I remember from that period of time was that I was, I was enjoying Arabic, but, you know, I hadn't really lived in the United States consistently for, you know, ever, you know, and I and you begin to have kind of a mythic sense of what the United States is. And here I was in New England in the beautiful Berkshire Mountains, and I was playing football, you know, and basketball and, you know, dating and, and it was autumn and New England. And I just decided I don't want to, I knew this, you know, I've been traveling in a sense my whole life. And I, I just thought, I, I think I'm going to stay and not do this program. So I shifted over and I ended up, my major was in uh, political science and, in, and to some extent with it, an emphasis on Islamic studies. And I probably took more interreligious courses than I took political science courses and that, um, but none of it was to be. Although it is funny when you think of it, if just jumping way ahead in my own personal story, jumping way ahead to having a record deal in Nashville during the the 90s, this enormous wave that came, you know, Nashville's, what happened in country music in the late 80s and 90s is the stuff of musicology, you know. And one of the records, when I finally got a record deal, again, I'm jumping way ahead, on a major label where they put me on the road, you know, they, you, and you'd have to go out to radio stations, what they call the, you know, the radio tour, because basically you're trying to get radio stations that represent the charts to play your songs. And it's, and back then there were so many labels in Nashville and so many artists, but I would go in and of course they would ask you these kinds of questions. They'd say, so you, you actually went to college, you, you know, you graduate from college. And it was bad enough saying that I went to college in New England, but then if, if they'd ask me, what did you study? And I'd have to say Islamic studies. And you should try to imagine in the 90s in a Texas, you <laughs> know, great. W. Fox or whatever, you know, the little froggy or whatever. And, and I just remember people would look at me and it's like, what the hell we got here? You know, I, I, in fact, I even there was one an article uh, written about the record by I think it was a Chicago Tribune. And this guy it was, a, you know, it was fun. It was a really good interview and it was very in depth and it was interesting. And I think the record was quite interesting. So we got into some of this stuff. And I remember the, rec the the president of Sony Records called me into the office and kind of, he said, you know, we need you to not talk about this stuff. You know, we don't, we need it. We don't need you to emphasize, you know, your feelings about, you know, the Middle East or your sense of theology or your political, you know, he goes, none of that. <clears throat> we don't want to hear any of that. And uh, we want to try to, you know, talk about, you know, country music as you understand it, I guess. And I remember kind of saying, well, it is what it is. Yeah. You know, what's interesting about that is that, that Columbia um, or Sony, I mean, in the, when would it be? I guess that was the 70s. I mean, they had some bands like Chicago, Blood, Sweat and Tears, 
other people that were very political in how they felt. About oh no, this is yeah, and this is only a reflection of Nashville in the 1990s, and you know, not at all a reflection of Columbia. No, no, not at all. And by the by the way, if I if I were selling a, at that time, if I had, was if I was successful, like if I had been successful at that time as a country artist, they wouldn't have been asking, they wouldn't have been saying anything to me about that. It was just that, you know, they're trying to find a way to get this guy who's clearly a hybrid, you know, you know, the reality for me as an artist was there wasn't any, there wasn't an obvious home for the way I played instruments and sang and wrote songs. There just wasn't. I mean, today you might say, you know, you got to remember there was no Americana in 1994, 95. What there was, was, you know, a country music was so huge that in 93, it was like the largest of the high chart and all music. Now that is very brief because, you know, countries basically only celebrated in the English speaking world. So that limits it. And urban music, you know, is, you know, always going to be bigger because it's just, you know, everywhere, yeah. everywhere is urban music. Right. Um, and in the nineties, you, you know, people ask me like, what was it like? You know, the gold, you know, a lot of people around here anyway, we talk about the nineties as kind of like a, a golden age, at least in terms of the way the sales and, and the diversity of country music at that time. And I was like, well, I'll tell you what it was like. One guy, one guy, just one person outsold Elvis in seven years. That's how big it was. And then, of course, his career, you know, dipped and Elvis keeps, Elvis is forever. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, Garth Brooks outsold the Beatles in seven years. I don't know, like 120 million records. And as I say, the Beatles keep moving. But and that, that, and that was Garth. But it was, you know, there was also Brooks and Nunn and there was, you know, Shania Twain and later the Dixie Chicks would come and there was like all kinds of artists that weren't even, that you would never even remember sold, you know, gold, sold 500,000 units. I mean, well, now, you know, in the age of streaming, of course, we'll probably never see its like again, but it, it was, it was a tsunami. Do you think, um, you know, talking about what happened to you, you know, about don't talk about Islamic studies and all of that. Do you think that you could trace a connecting line from that to the Dixie Chicks of uh, Shut Up and Sing, that whole story, or not? That's a continuation of that way of well, thinking, just sort of magnified? Yeah, Tony, you know, Nashville is just such an interesting town. It's so uh, layered. There is the perception that, you know, we're an entirely sort of red community in terms of the music, and we don't, some of that is, is some there's a truth to it or that country music is kind of inherently racist there really aren't black artists other than Darius I mean it's really really complicated when I look at the Dixie Chicks I think that they got caught up in something in the 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 chasm that exists culturally in America you know at a time when when things were hot you know we we had a war that was very popular with about half of America. We had a Texas president who, you know, the time seemed really conservative and kind of unpopular among the middle and the left. And now, of course, he's like beloved compared to what we've just been through. Um, everybody's best friend. But I think that what complicates the issue with the Dixie Chicks is is, is also misogyny, that um, there's some truth to all of it. But, you know, the Dixie Chicks brought an audience that was – left, right, and center. I mean, they're just that good. I mean, you got to remember in two or three years, you know, they, those two albums, that's the largest selling record by a female vocal group in the history of music in, in all genres, right? In all genres. And they, 
you know, and, and it took pissing off the most powerful man in the world to sort of slow down that career. It didn't end the career, but it slowed it down, the sales. And obviously, for those that have seen the movie, Shut Up and Sing. And Now, I was sort of in the middle of that because I I co-wrote the first two singles on Fly, which subsequently became the, the biggest album of its kind. Yeah, and they're they're both great. And we're going to talk about one in detail, if you don't mind. No, not at all. And uh, but they also knew, of course, I mean, I, my politics, I'm not, you know, I, I'm very interested in people having a diversity of opinions. I'm not a person who feels like everyone needs to think like I do. I, you know, I have many of the people I work with are quite conservative, very many, most almost in the music business, probably here, Republican, and, you know, but I'm not, you know, so that's kind of not, no, nobody thinks I am. And I, I have my own opinions about a lot of things, obviously, but, you know, I grew up with parents like who are Democrats, they like marched on Washington to hear Martin Luther King in 1963. You know, we had, we'd have poster, we had a poster of like the Kennedys in our, you know, on the wall. And really? Then, okay. You know, later, you know, like Mandela, we'd have, you know, the, these, this was, they were very, um, they were Midwesterners, you know, Michigan, Ohio people, they, but they were, you know, they were quite, well, I guess now, I guess we would say liberals, you know, for some, it's kind of a dirty word, but they were just very interested in social justice and, and the civil rights movement was, was a big deal to my mom and my dad. And I mean, throughout their life. Uh, and, and so, you know, so I grew up in that kind of a family and, and I didn't make any, I wasn't hiding any of that. And, as it turns out, once I finally got a deal on Columbia and I kind of went out for a couple of years and did, you know, I did the dog and pony show and, and basically country radio, you know, it didn't really didn't play me. And there could be a lot of reasons for that. But once that was passed and I was kind of on to a one last record deal, kind of conventional record deal, which is out of London. By that time, I didn't even care anymore. I just like, I just, it, it wouldn't, you know, didn't even matter to me. You hate it to find out if, you know, somebody doesn't want to work with you because of that or something. But, but the chicks, you know, they just, the funny thing about the girls, you know, they're girls, they're from Austin. And I could never, you know, it was a surprise to me that anyone thought they were anything but, you know, liberal. Of course, they're from, they're from Austin. <laughs> and also, I just knew them. And, but prior to all of this coming out, you know, the, the hoopla over them being in England and a heckler, which everyone knows the story now, somebody heckling about how unpopular George Bush was, you know, in England. And they were like, I think Natalie, who was always a great performer, kind of a live wire saying something to the effect of, well, you know, we, we wish he weren't from Texas, you know, or something. Yeah. We're embarrassed to be from Texas. I think she said, we're embarrassed to be from Texas. Yeah. And I remember, I mean, I remember like the weekend that happened, I can remember coming into my publishing company, my publisher's very conservative and very good friend of mine, but very, you know, very conservative. And she, she said, did you read what happened in England? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I heard something. And she said, that's it. They're done. They're, it's over. And I remember thinking, and I think I said something to the effect of, well, that's, that's, that's absurd. That's nonsense. Because they were like the Rolling Stones at that point. In fact, their concerts were a lot like the Rolling Stones. They actually even came out of the middle of a man's zipper, just like the Stones used to. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, and by great. the way, with my with my song, oh, okay. <laughs> I was hoping you weren't going to say run. zipper. So, uh, no. yeah. Wow, really? Which song? Ready to run. Ba, yeah, 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 yeah. Ba, da, 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 yeah. And they, Marty, and that's how they came out. Yeah. Well, they have this giant. I went to see him in Dallas. You know, 
and the fly tour was just you know it was, it was unbelievable you know because it was is also that why it was it called the fly tour <laughs> well they if you want to look at that album they do all kinds of funny pictures around the idea of fly the different things that fly yeah yeah used. but i'm thinking that the fly like is in zipper yeah no that's right they, then one of the lead photos of them climbing out of a man's pants oh okay there's all okay. kinds but it was all spooky okay. and, and it's very yeah, rock yeah. and roll i mean you know they, yeah, yeah. That, that of course is part of their allure is that <clears throat> and one of the reasons why you know everybody liked him you did, i mean yeah all, all all sectors, you know, all sides on the, the cultural continuum where they were united and it was just really good music. And they, they could really play. Natalie is a great singer. Yeah, in she's my opinion, great. For the most yeah. part, that I believe they picked great material. I think that great material exists to this day. It's just generally ignored. A lot of times people just, they don't have the sense of, they don't have the sense to go find. Some of it's cowardice, but some of it is just aesthetics. You know, the girls, they... You're also talking about a group that, you know, went out and decided who was going to open this biggest of tours, one of the biggest tours in the world. Well, a little known singer songwriter by the name of Patty Griffin. You know, I had enough background in folk music. That really was the music that I came from, folk folk rock and then so, a little bit of soul mixed in. <clears throat> I knew who Patty Griffin was. She's one of the best singers out there and she's one of the grooviest writers. But that that would be an example that, you know, the fact that they not only knew that, but they celebrated that and the relative anonymity of the artist, it didn't make any difference, you know, because she was just great. So I have nothing but, you know, musically speaking and it just well, in general, I have nothing but respect for the chicks and the uh, my main contact there, my the person I really wrote. Cowboy and Ready to Run and a lot of other songs with is Marty McGuire. So the the, the sister, the two sisters, the fiddling sister, mm-hmm. and she was my main. Uh, we we really hit it off as writers. And anyway, yeah. So that's a long time ago. But going back to your question, Tony, that I don't know that there's a tremendous connection between someone wanting me. I I think that the problem with me was was not just that something like, well, if he answers these questions and. You know, he's going to end up talking, you know, Marcus is like, he's going to talk about music, but in a broad terms about poetry, he's going to talk about theology, he's going to talk about culture, because those are the things that are interest me and that are sort of, I, I like to think are part of the music I make and the theater, I write And all that. And I think they were probably right. And they just wanted me to be, you know, to just not talk so much. And that's probably, that might not even have been bad advice it's just that i think looking back on it now i would say it's always best just to be yourself you know 